0: Thanks, man. What's going on, everybody? If this is your first time here at City Light Lincoln Church, welcome. My name's Skyler. I'm the uh, director of the College Ministry of the Salt Company. I'm excited to be with us this morning. If you would join me in praying for this morning and uh, the preaching of the word that God would speak to us um, through Luke 6. Father God, what we are about to read and and look at, and observe, and study through is your son who came to earth to teach, and he did far more than teach, but when he did teach, he, didn't, he wasn't known for teaching things that were easy for us to hear. And this morning, we look through one of the most difficult things that Jesus ever asked us to do. So Father, we desire that our lives would be glorifying to your name, and we know that this is one of the ways that we do that. And the only way that any of us will ever actually love our enemies well is by the power of your Spirit changing us, who we are, and being with us every single day as we live our lives, as we go to work, as we're around our families. This is the only way that we'll ever be able to do this. So Father, to glorify your name, we ask that you would come this morning and that you would work in us to understand Luke 6. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Um, so I've got a friend who's significantly older than me, and what I typically like to do when I preach a sermon is I like to talk to different people, different family members, different friends, different people in our church, and get perspective on a text. Not necessarily looking for anything, I like to ask questions of people and figure out what they believe about a text, because sometimes their different life experiences and perspectives help me to get an idea of what this text is saying or how to apply it. Well, this friend of mine, we'll say his name is Mike. He has had one of the most difficult hands dealt to him out of anybody that I know. Like his life has been marked by struggle after struggle after struggle. So for me, I love to talk to Mike about almost every text that I preach because every time that I talk to him, he has a completely different perspective than most of the people that I talk to. Mike is incredible to talk to about this text. And so what I did... This last week, I think it was last Monday, I was talking to Mike on the phone, and we were just doing the normal catch-up, see how things were going. And I told him, I said, Mike, I got a new text for you that I'm preaching. He's like, all right, that's great. Let me hear it. And I told him, Luke 6, loving your enemies. And there was silence. And then he started laughing. And then Mike said, oh, Skylar, of all the Bible, this this is the one thing I wish wasn't there. So I'm thinking to myself, one, can he say that? Is that okay to say? And two, I was like, well, thanks, Mike. That was entirely unhelpful. All right, talk to you next time I preach. But I started thinking about what Mike said, how much he didn't want this to be in the Bible. And I started to see how much that was true of my own life. And I'm going to guess that that might be true of all of our lives. Put it this way for me, if you would. Imagine for a minute that there was a museum and what was on display was all of our favorite Bible verses. You walk into the museum, the grand opening, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You walk down the main hallway, there's your semi-out-of-context verses like Philippians 4.13. I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jeremiah 29.11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. The less out of context, like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We love them. we just like, oh, man, so good. We get so hyped as we're walking down the hallway. And as you turn to your left, there's this dimly lit, kind of creepy-looking hallway part of the museum. We walk down it. There's some less familiar passages from, like, Leviticus and stuff like that. And you get to the end of that hallway, and there's an exit sign flickering. Open that. There's a dumpster outside. You go digging through the dumpster. I would guess that the bottom of the dumpster of our favorite verses is Luke chapter 6 on loving your enemies. Why? Because there is only one place where this text is easy to think about, and that's sitting in church on a Sunday, where we don't have to do it, and we can say, amen, Yep. That's good. But the second, the second that we leave this church, and it takes 12 to 15 minutes to get out of the parking lot, and then you get cut off on O Street, this verse becomes very, very difficult. Or tomorrow, when we walk back into work, and you get that comment from your boss or your coworkers, this text becomes extremely difficult. Or when we go home, and there's the same old fights about the same old things, this text becomes nearly Impossible to us. Jesus gives one of the most controversial statements of his ministry in Luke 6, 27-36. The title for our sermon this morning is not creative or crafty or anything like that. It is love your enemies. The sermon in a sentence, the main point, love your enemies. And the reason why it does not need to be creative or crafty is because it's so simple, but it is one of the hardest things that we will do, is love your enemies. And so what Jesus is going to do in this text is he's going to give us a full description of what does it look like to do this? Why would we ever do it? How are we supposed to do it? The who, what, when, where, why, and how of loving your enemies newsflash, Win all the time, where, wherever you are. So two of those are gone. So we've got the who, the what, the why, and the how. That's what our text is going to show us. The who, the what, the why, and the how of loving your enemies. So let's start with the who. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Those three words, the title of our sermon, the main point of the text, love your enemies. Who are we supposed to love? Your enemies. By definition, an enemy is someone that is against you. So what makes sense in our flesh is when someone is against us, we are against them. And at best, we will avoid them so that we just don't ever see them, and at worst, we fight them. And what Jesus is telling us here is not just avoidance or conflict, but it sounds like he says something totally different. We're supposed to love them. So let's dissect these three words for our first point for the who. Your enemies. I'm going to guess that probably half the people in this room, when we hear enemies, we don't immediately think of ourselves having enemies. But what I want you to consider is that we have to stop thinking of enemies like an arch nemesis. Like, an enemy is not someone that needs to have evil background music when they walk into the room. All right, and let me read something for you. This is, I think, three verses up from where we are. So this is in verse 23, so four verses up. Jesus says, um, or 22, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. So Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, profane your name on, the, on account of him. So it's not just people that hate you because you're a jerk, but people that exclude us, hate us, insult you, profane your name, behind your back probably, because of following Jesus. I'm going to blow this up a little bit and just say anybody that's against you in any of those ways, any of us ever been excluded, hated, insulted, or profaned against Probably all of us. So what I want you to do is start picturing those people in your head. Have the list, and I can feel the collective blood pressure of the room rising. As we start to boil, because there's a reason why it's called an enemy. We don't like them. And so what we're thinking through, now I, t- I actually want to take this a step further. Not just the people who have done those things to you, but what about the people who have done those things to the people that you care about? Now I would imagine we all get, more uncomfortable with this, because if there's anyone that we want to protect, it's those closest to us. And the people who hate, insult, profane, exclude the ones that we love, now we've got a list in our head of enemies. Now we're picturing some faces of enemies. It could be coworkers, your boss, people back at home, old relationships, political leaders, the parent of the kid who bullies your kid, I mean these are all real circumstances that we are probably all thinking of when we see enemies. What does Jesus say to do with them? Be like okay with them? No, he tells us to love our enemies. Biblical love is almost completely different than our cultural understanding of love right now. In the Bible, love is almost never a ver- or a noun but a verb. It's not a feeling of like, oh, love, I'm in love. But it's almost always the decision, the conscious decision in action that I choose to love this person. That's the radical difference because our culture tells us to follow our heart. Our culture tells us to let love lead the way. Our culture tells us that if it feels right, then it probably is right. The problem with that is that almost every time Jesus talks about loving, it's a verb and a decision to love. Um, the first lines of my vow, when I got married to my wife Cassie, the first lines of my vow were, Cassie, I vow to love you, not as a feeling, but as a choice. Why? Because when we don't feel like loving I still want to love my wife, which is never a problem because my wife and I, every night, look into each other's eyes, fireworks in the background. We always feel, nope. (laughs) There There is a reality that if I have not committed to love my wife as a choice, then our marriage would be drastically different than it is. And in the same way, this is why this is huge, that love in the Bible and love here is a verb and not a noun, is because if we wait until the morning that we wake up and start to feel like we like our enemies, guess what? It ain't gonna happen. You will never wake up and be like, man, they hate me. I like them. That's not gonna happen. However, we can... I guarantee you that you can, without a doubt, no matter what's it like outside or how your week has been, you can, without a doubt, wake up in the morning and choose that you are going to love your enemies. No matter how you feel or what you've been doing, you can always choose to love the people who hate you. You can always choose that. Jesus says, Love your enemies. So the natural following question is going to be, okay. Love your enemies, what does that look like? We looked at the who, what does that look like? Let's move on in our verses. So after he says, love your enemies, Jesus says, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So that's our list. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. What I want you to see here is two observations. One, the progressive nature of this, how it actually gets to a deeper heart level motivation every time. Do good to those who hate you, which is hard enough in itself. The people that hate us and are against us, do good to them. But I'm guessing that most of us can do good to those who hate us. But what Jesus does is he doesn't allow us to just say, yep, doing great, check. But he moves to the next level. Bless those who curse you. So to bless those is to actually be concerned about the joy of their soul, to actually want for their life to be better so that they would find joy. Ouch. Then we keep going though. Pray for those <clears throat> Where am I? Pray for those who abuse you. So not only doing good to those who hate you or blessing those who curse you, but then, in our private life, when nobody's watching, asking the Lord to do good to them, praying for our enemies. When's the last time we prayed for our enemies? I can tell you, before I started studying this passage and realizing how short I fell in this, not much. Because the last person that I want to pray for is someone that hates me. So it moves deep to a core level kind of love, an actual desire for the people who hate us to be better off than they were. Praying for them, blessing them, doing good to them. The second observation is that this completely gets rid of the Nebraska nice kind of blessing. Of like, of like the grocery store smile, of like, hey, how are the kids? See ya. And then you walk home and say, you're never gonna believe who I saw at the store. I can't lose them. And then you talk bad about them for like 15 minutes. It completely gets rid of that. Because this kind of love is one that says, that is a person who does not like me, but I'm going to choose to love them, do good, bless them, pray for them. That's what it looks like. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He gives more instruction. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So if you're anything like me, you start asking some logistical questions here. Why would I give my cloak when he already took my tunic. Give to everyone who asks? Like everyone? When people take things from me, don't ask for anything back? Like how often does that need to be hap Like I'll be broke soon if that happens. We start to ask a lot of logistical questions of what does that actually mean to when somebody slaps you on the cheek, which would be a language for when somebody insults you, to let them continue insulting you. If someone takes something from you, give them what else is on your back. If someone asks from you, give. If someone borrows, not asking for anything back. And we start to ask, yeah, but how often, Jesus? I mean, really, that is not practical. That's exactly the point. It's not practical because Jesus is not calling us here to a practical kind of love, but a love that is so not practical that there's got to be something different about us. It's not a practical love. And so as we're asking logistical questions, I want you to know that the Bible does give guidance for us to have discernment in these things, but I want us to just for a minute take this at face value and say giving to everyone who asks, giving when, it's ta- when something's taken from you, letting them to continue to insult you, because we like to get real squirrely with exceptions and loopholes of like, oh, but Jesus actually said this somewhere else. I just want you to take it at face value that Jesus is really talking about a radical, selfless kind of love for those who hate us. And if that wasn't hard enough already, all the things that He said—doing good, blessing, praying for, letting them insult you, giving up your, your what's stolen, giving to everyone who asks—Jesus gives maybe the hardest thing that He says. He says, and in 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. What we know is the golden rule. As you wish what others would do to you, do so to them. The same treatment that you would like for yourself, which newsflash is good, do so to others. Now here's what's crazy contextually about this. In Jesus' time, this saying was kind of floating around by a lot of Greek philosophers and ancient, like ancient philosophers that kind of spoke into their culture. But Jesus was the first person to ever say this kind of thing in a positive light. What I mean by that is that the the Greek philosophers had really common sayings that were negative. So those things that you do not want to be done to yourself, don't do to others. The things that you hate, don't do those to others. But what Jesus said is do to others what you would want done to yourself. Why is that helpful at all? Because it radically changes. It, it completely changes how we view what Jesus said. At best, the world's definition of loving your enemies, at best, is mere hesitating from doing evil. Someone takes from me, I'm going to take from them. Ooh, no, don't. Don't do what I would want not want done to me. Someone insults you, I'm going to come right back at them. Mm, No, hold your tongue. Don't do it. Hesitation. Someone asks for me, I don't want to give. Mm, I would hate that. Sure, I'll give. That's the best that the world can offer. And that looks like a pretty good person, but that's the best. What's different, though, is what Jesus is describing is on the positive. A first-foot-forward step to say, regardless, I want what's best for you. I actually want to bless somebody Who hates me? The difference is human restraint from doing evil. And Jesus describes a complete nature change of a human being a heart that's transformed that actually wants to love and bless other people. That's what Jesus is describing. The positive affirmation of first foot forward, I actually want to bless you. It's so completely radical, not productive, not efficient. Completely different than we would ever naturally do. So the question has to be asked then, why on earth would we do it? Why would we love our enemies? And that's where Jesus moves next in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. So again, I think we're probably asking some logistic questions. Love those who love you. What benefit is that to you? That's a big benefit. They love me. They'll keep loving me. uh, And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? A pretty significant benefit because they will continue to do good for me. And if you lend to those who you expect to receive, what benefit is that to you? Pretty decent benefit. I'm going to get back what I lended. Side note, Jesus is not like, if you're a banker, you don't need to like quit your job. This, the language of this is saying lending in expectation that they will future get. So there's nothing wrong with giving somebody a, le- like a loan expecting them to return it. That's not what's happening here. But all these make sense. Why on earth wouldn't we love those who love us? Do good who, those who are going to do good to us. Give in the expectation that one day they'll give it back to us. Why is that a problem? Jesus answers it every single time, every one of those logistical questions, because even sinners do the same. Now, is this talking about people who sin? No. This is talking about a category and a status. The two statuses would be not, the, or a believer, and then what they are calling, the, what Jesus is calling the sinners here. Does that mean that a believer is not sinning? No. but this is, So we can look at sinners and just talk about the world like those who are not following Jesus. This is exactly what the world does. Even the most evil people in all of the world love some people really, really well. And it's those that love them back and will do good to them. The difference is that Jesus' disciples are to love those who will never love them back. When I was studying through this text, I read a quote from a pastor that like, dagger through the heart, convicted me like crazy, and he said, if you only love those who love you back or will benefit you, that is just self-love with a slightly wider range. How many of us exercise our day-to-day lives with self-love with a slightly wider range? But what Jesus wants to do is blow that off of his hinges and say, step out and love those who will probably never love you back. That's what he's calling for. So why would we do it? Because you will look completely opposite from the world when we love our enemies. I can promise you that the world will never genuinely step out and love and care about enemies because there's no benefit in return. But as followers of Jesus the most radical thing that we could do with our actions in our lives is to go out and bless those who are against us, to love our enemies. A caveat here that I want to just give is loving your enemies does not mean that if you're in a domestic abuse situation that Jesus is advocating that you stay where you are. This isn't a call to stay in an abusive situation, and that's what loving your enemies would be. I just want to say that if that's you, that the best thing for you, and I'm convinced, I guarantee you the thing that Jesus would advocate is that you get out of that situation. As we keep looking in the text here, there's one more reason that Jesus gives the why. Why on earth will we do it? Because in 35, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And your reward will be great. So here's what I can say. As you've got your list of people in your head that make our blood boil because they are enemies, and you love them, there is never, ever, ever ever a guarantee that they will ever reciprocate that at all, ever show love to you, ever even like you. But I can promise you that every single time we do this, your father in heaven sees it every single time, and it will never go unnoticed every single time. Can I tell you the logistics of what your heavenly reward will look like? No, but I can tell you that he has never once missed when his children are loving their enemies and it pleases him. And if that right there isn't enough, just to know that it pleases the God who saved us, if that's not enough, then we've got a whole different heart issue to worry about. It pleases God, and he sees it. So application is pretty simple here. You've heard of a prayer list before. Make an enemy list. And if it's someone sitting close to you, write in small handwriting or wait till you're alone. Make an enemy list. And do good to those people. And bless those people. And turn that enemy list into a prayer list. And pray for those people. Day in and day out, not just for the next couple days, a regular life pattern of those who do not love us, stepping out, desiring for their good, and loving them. So... The the last question that has to be asked is, okay, I get it. I get that we're supposed to love our enemies, what that looks like, why we're supposed to do it. How? How on earth could any of us do this for more than just a few days? And Jesus answers that too. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Who is Jesus preaching to in the Sermon on the Mount? I want to argue if you look at verse 27, the top of our text, it says what I say to you who hear. Is Jesus disproportionately discriminatory towards the deaf? Nope. What is he saying to you who hear? He's talking about those who spiritually can hear the things that he's saying. And there's only one kind of person who can hear this message and respond to it. And that's those who are are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who have been saved, who have been changed, brought from death to life. True Christians, born-again believers, that's those who can hear That's what that means. But I say to use those who hear. And then we go back down to our bottom, it says you'll be sons of the Most High. The language here isn't actually saying do this and then you'll be a child of God. It's saying you do this because you're a child of God. When we've been saved, we will do this. Here's why that is important. Because I bet there's a good amount of people in this room that will walk away, leave those doors, and say, all right, application Love my my enemies, then God will love me. And we have absolutely missed the point. The Sermon on the Mount is talking about the kingdom of God, specifically those who are part of the kingdom of God, how they are to live. Imagine with me for a minute a river with a fairly strong current. You're in a boat here, and the destination that you need to get to is a few miles up the river, upstream, and all that you have is paddles. For a while, you will likely paddle up the river and make it a little ways. Eventually, though, you are going to get exhausted, quit, and just drift right back down the river. In the same way, that current is our flesh, our desire. Every time that one of our enemies hates us, our flesh wants to hate them back, to go against them. And if we take this and just say, "Oh, I just need to try harder to love my enemies, then maybe for two or three days we will paddle upstream against that. Maybe for two or three days, we will fight against our flesh desire to to hate our enemies. But eventually, you will tire out, quit, and just drift right back down the river, and you will look no different than the world. The only way to make it to your destination is to put a propeller on that boat and let it take you up the river. And in the same way, those who have been saved are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who by nature will create in us A love for our enemies over time. And so we don't do this by trying really hard and working really hard, but day by day, submitting to the authority of the Holy Spirit, dying to ourselves, and submitting to Him and saying, Spirit, I don't have the power to love my enemies. It's just not in me, but I know it's in you. How do we know it's in you? Because of what the end of the verse says For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Here's what Romans 5.8 says. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still sinners. Not God showed his love for us in the second that we cleaned ourselves up and really made ourselves presentable, Christ died for us. Not the second that we got it all figured out and stopped being an enemy of God. Christ died for us. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the end of the book of Luke, we're going to see this at the end of the year, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who's he talking about? The people who are ripping the flesh off of his body as they whip him, as his face is covered in spit from the mockers as his head is bleeding because they pressed the crown of thorns on his head, the definition of enemies, and Jesus looked at them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus looked upon his enemies and prayed for them and blessed them and did the ultimate good for them, because while you and I were still enemies, he ended his life on that cross. And gave his life up as a sacrifice for anyone in this room who believes in him. If you put your faith in Jesus, that prayer on the cross applies to you. Forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the forgiveness that is extended to you, us, his enemies. Because as our sins nailed him to the cross and he suffered the wrath of God on that cross, it meant that we get to go free when we trust in him. But God shows his love for us in that we, while, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now to close here, um, I think there's probably a decent number of people, when we hear he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil, I don't know if we would classify ourselves in that category. I I'm not ungrateful and evil. Like, you can't tell me that I'm that. The Bible can't tell me that I'm that. You don't know my heart. And what I want you, what I just want to propose for a minute is that we all collectively think about the Snickers commercial, you're not you when you're hungry. The lady sitting in the back of the car who says, turn on the air conditioning, open the window, you're driving too fast, and they say, here, Joe, take a Snickers, you're not you when you're hungry. And then he takes a few bites, and he's back to Joe, just the normal guy. I think that Snickers has got it 100% wrong. I think you are exactly who you are when we're hungry. Imagine the least pleasant version of yourself, whatever it is. I haven't eaten in four hours. I've only got four hours of sleep. I've got four hours of work to do when I get home. Overwhelmed, tired, hungry... Those moments when the people around you say, you need to like chill. That's the person that you are when there is no external cushion to make you happy. When there's no environmental cushion to make us happy, the person that we are to our core is who we are when we have the least things going for us. And so I got to tell you, as a recent father of a newborn, I have learned that at 2 a.m. when my daughter wakes me up, there is a rage and anger in me that I, that I have never experienced before and it has actually terrified me for the last two weeks that an angry and wicked Schuyler that is completely different than I ever experienced before, that's the one who God saved. That's the one who Jesus died for. I deserve nothing at 2 a.m., when my daughter wakes me up, because of the thoughts that go through my head and the anger that I feel. And in the same way, the people that you are, when there is no environmental cushion to make us happy, that's the one who God died for. That's the one that the Father shows mercy to by sending his son to die on the cross. And what we're going to see this morning is 17 baptisms of people who have given their lives to Jesus. And what I want us to do is change our lens from looking at these people of saying, yeah, they're happy because they finally figured it out and now they're going to get baptized. I want you to look at these people as the hangry, sleep-deprived, overwhelmed, wretched people that look and see, at my worst, I deserve nothing. And yet Jesus died for me and given me new life. And so I want to challenge you that if that resonates with you, and you actually understand that at your worst, there is nothing that you deserve except for punishment from God. We're going to pray to end here, and I just want you to know, you can take this time to cry out to the Lord and beg him to save you, to show you mercy, and he will do it. He will do it. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. Father God, there is undoubtedly dozens and dozens of people in this room who listen to this, and there's no strength within them to love their enemies. And we know for multiple reasons. One We believe that there are believers who are at their wits end with the people around them, and we pray that you would fill them with strength to love their enemies. And two, for the group of people that have not been changed, regenerated by you, we beg you, God, that you would save. We beg you, God, that you would make people new. And we pray that right now there would be people who cry out to you and say, Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner and I need your grace. Jesus, thank you that you came and that you taught us this radical, unproductive, countercultural love because it shows us how much we need you every single day. We pray that we would be a people that leave this room loving our enemies. It's in your name. Amen.